Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. This is part two of our conversation with Peter Speak Marin. If you haven't yet done so, I would recommend you listen to part one before listening to this episode. You can find a link to the previous episode in the show notes. No, so it sounds like uh, Daniela played uh, a significant role in, in the, the success that the two of you have had as as independents. Daniela is, in a sense, the Forzi to your Grubel. Daniela is the most extraordinary person I think I've ever met. We disagree virtually about everything, which is actually very powerful because the the last thing that you want when you're developing a business for the first time and you haven't got a clue really what you're doing is to have a carbon copy of who you are agreeing with you. So with Daniela, we'd always have very different views on what to do and how to do it, but we would always find a middle ground. And that middle ground was always better than my idea or her idea. It was the it was the coming together of two very different people, a man and a woman, two, two quite stubborn, independent individuals. She worked with me initially from 2000 until 2009, or 2002 to 2009, I think it was. Because for the first two years, when I became independent, she carried on working for a telephone company. And I covered all the costs of the company and she of the watchmaking, and she covered all of our home costs. So without her doing what she did, I could not have actually developed all the projects that I had, which required a certain amount of investment, which was coming from the money that I was actually making. Um, no bank would entertain uh, giving us any kind of help. So everything we did had to come from what we would produce ourselves. So Daniela financed our, our home life, and she was a sounding board for everything that I did. And then from about 2002, 2003, when things started to move forward, she quit the work that she had, and then we started working full time. Uh, so, and then she dealt with basic management, administration, marketing, sales, the commercial aspect, everything, which then again freed me to be able to actually develop the, the different watches that I was making, as well as within a few years, and probably from about 2003, 2004, start to travel, um, because that's how we sold uh, at that time. Um, I would do the tours and then we would make the watches which were ordered as a result of those tours. But the design element was always mine, but she would always give input. The way we would actually, the decisions that we made were always joint. And I think it probably is fair to say, if she had not been there, it would never have happened. It takes a very special kind of person, also who's prepared to do those things, to actually, to make that sacrifice to work, to do the hours that are actually required. And in a sense, just never to give up, just to keep on going. And that continued until 2009. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why it ended in 2009, which aren't really relevant to this conversation. I would then jump forward to 2016, when we've, uh, we've sold and, and left the, the old company. And then we have a new life, a new direction, new uh, new aspirations. And that's really, that's where Stoic and the Naked Watchmaker come into play. I was introduced by Ian Skellen to 
Tim Ferriss and the four-hour work week. This was going back to whatever, 2014, 2015. 2014, I think it was. Uh, I'd never heard of Tim Ferriss, but I was fascinated by the, the book. And I don't even think I read all of it. I just flicked through it, but there were different elements in it that I find, found fascinating. And then I started listening to his podcasts and he had quite a profound effect on me, which has actually, which is probably the catalyst for both, both Stoic World and Stoic Watches, as well as the Naked Watchmaker. Because one of the biggest things that I knew from my earlier professional life, but I never could really verbalize, was the value of time. I was involved in it. I made it. But it was only really through studying uh, the quotes and a little bit about Stoicism, which was really through Mr. Ferris, that I understood or I was really shown face to face with the most valuable resource in the world is what we do with our life. And that comes down to time. Time is the equivalent to, to, to life. And when I researched Stoic as, as a, from, from a commercial point of view, to see whether Stoic was actually available under Category 14, which is watches and jewelry, it was. And that was very surreal because virtually every name in every variation has been protected at some point in virtually every category. And to have a name which has been around for over two, nearly two and a half thousand years, which I perceive to be as strong as Stoic, not protected, it was just like, okay, this is something which I, I should do. So I did. And the, and the Stoic project was then born. And it went, uh, it became live in 2000 or, blah, 2018. Yeah, it was last year, about July of last year. But it was very, it was definitely a, an effect from, from Ferris. And the Naked Watchmaker, which is what I spend virtually all of my time on, the, the, the concept of Stoic watches was very much aligned with the book, automation, minimum risk, using all the different technologies, marketing techniques, websites, everything which he talks about in the book, which exists and which is now quite common today, has, was integrated into, into Stoic world. And then other things that he spoke about when he talks about in his, uh, in his podcast, The Deconstructions of People, that gave me the idea of doing, making deconstructions of watches, which is what I was doing back in London uh, at Somlo's. But again, it's kind of re, obviously repackaging it, but just coming at it at a different angle. And now, because of digital photography, making your own websites, social media, all of the different tools that are available, people per hour, uh, all of these different tools that are around us make it e relatively easy or make it possible to take a project as complex as the Naked Watchmaker and make it into something real. And also the, 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 the people section on the Naked Watchmaker is also inspired from, uh, from Mr. Ferris. The concept of having a series of set questions which are posed to people who are important within this industry. Everybody's different. Therefore, every question is answered in a different way, uh, for, for the most part. He, he has had a, a fairly substantial effect uh, on everything that I've done. And Daniela was very much uh, aligned with that, with that whole concept uh, as well. I have to say, though, the Naked Watchmaker Project for me is something that I feel very deeply about because in my life, I've been a teacher and 
I, I firmly believe that passing on information is is incredibly important. I, I know that Philippe Dufour's comment about uh, graveyards being full of secrets is something that's that stuck with me. So I do appreciate what you're doing with the Naked Watchmaker project. It, it's um, it's something that for people like myself who are getting new into this industry and are trying to learn. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the time to go back and and go through. Uh, you know the woe step program and you know work for someone like Renault and Pappy and and spend the years uh, working on watches like you did uh, so this is a, a huge advantage for people like me to be able to actually get into this industry and learn about it have you found that the uh, the responses to the naked watchmaker have lived up to what you were expecting for it I know it's still a, a relatively young project but are you are you happy with the way that it's been received so far by the industry? Okay, this, there's a certain paradox here. It has become everything that I wanted it to become, and yet I and I, which I believed, yet at the same time I'm surprised. I guess the success of it is an in a sense is an academic, what I perceive to be inevitability, but the surprise is kind of an emotional thing whereby part of my own insecurities always uh, leave me bewildered when what my brain says will happen is actually realized. So the, the actual project was launched in 2017. Um, I think it was September, I think, when the site went up. Okay, so it, it, it'll be two years old, 24 months old very, very soon which is nothing, not considering the size. And when I look at what, what we've managed to do, we've done an enormous amount. And now, because statistically, uh, from, from, from the site's uh, statistics, uh, analytics, we can see how many people and where they are. And America is the biggest market. And then afterwards, it's Switzerland. And when we look at who, it's everybody. It's everybody in this industry. So I think initially people didn't get it. They didn't understand it uh, because it's something which is original and it's something which is different. Now people do, they understand it and they're fascinated by it. And one of the very first people that I contacted was Mark Hayek uh, from the Swatch Group. And I knew that there would be small companies and small individuals who were friends who would, who would participate. But I didn't think that in the short term, a big, uh, I mean, the biggest watch company in Switzerland would actually recognize it when it was in its infancy, which it still is. Certainly not when the thing had just been conceived. And he came back to me. Um, and I ended up working with the Swatch Group with Jackie Drow, Breguet, Blancpain. And they opened the doors, um, which is really unusual because most Swiss companies for very valid reasons, are very secretive, uh, and they don't let outsiders in for a hundred good reasons. And they did. I started off with Blancpain. Uh, I said the pieces that I wanted to work, which was six or seven, and they set me up in a workshop and they gave me everything that I wanted. And then I spent quite a long time with Breguet and ended up doing um, twelve or eleven pieces. And that, that those pieces are still being shown now. They come out now every two months. And I think that uh, Mr. Hayek actually gave 
kind of like he gave validity to what I was doing and he showed that he had confidence in what it was I was doing and he he got it he he kind of got it straight away so now we have uh, a whole stack of other companies I mean there's all those which are on the site and uh, we have Vacheron who have just signed up and we're working with them right now um there'll be Ferdinand too who we're working on their deconstruction i think it's in september um i just spent three weeks in japan of which about half of it was with grand seiko and Credor. that was i mean i i love asia uh always have done and that was that was three weeks that was three weeks touring around basically with my son uh just myself mm-hmm. and fenton uh it was i mean it, it's kind of a, it's such a privilege and again a company like uh grand seiko they're actually very, very special. It's not Swiss watchmaking. It's not European watchmaking. They do things their own way. And because they're so far away, their processes are different. And again, for them to open their doors in Morioka and Shirijiri um, and see all of how they do things, that takes actually a lot of confidence and a lot of trust. Mm. And these, uh, and that's what these, all of these companies are doing. And I believe, and or, I don't think I, I'm more the, the pessimist and Daniela is the optimist, but Daniela believes they will all become part of the naked watchmaker. And mm. I think she's right. I think, I think she's absolutely right. It will happen one way or another uh, in, the, in, I say in the shortness of time, not in the fullness of time, because it's all happening very, very quickly. Well, John and I were speaking a little bit about the article you just published concerning the Hiko Mizuno School in Tokyo. And we were shocked at the scale of how many students they have in that school. And I, I don't know that there are many other watchmaking schools out there that are, that are working at that scale right now. I don't either. And the only one that comes to mind for me is the NG Hayek school in Hong Kong that would come close or in the, the same ballpark. It's possible. I don't know. The, the, the site is educationally bound it's not bound it's not directed towards making people become watchmakers it's about the transmission of knowledge to to everybody Um, but part of that is understanding what different schools are out there so people can can have a better understanding really the first one to be contacted in any real detail has actually been that school in tokyo and that was because over over there and that's why that article is is quite substantial and we spent quite a lot of time uh, with them one of the things that i loved about seeing what i saw was that they don't actually have a huge amount of resources there compared i think with a lot of other schools shall we say i think other european schools that have they're, they're better equipped but by not having maybe the best equipment it forces people to be creative to be pragmatic and they were. When you look at, in one of the pictures, you see two guys on little laptops doing construction and around them, there's a bunch of tooling. That's it. That's all mm-hmm. they have as far as machinery. There's nothing else there. And yet what the guys are doing is actually pretty phenomenal. And I spoke to a number of the students or had, had what they was, most of them had a little bit of English. And most of the students that I met, they were there because they, they really, really wanted to be there. And the way that they were doing things was kind of archaic, but it meant that they would have to learn. It meant that they had to understand, in a sense, the hardest way of doing something. We can all 
send a component to be made by a company. But making it yourself gives you a completely different viewpoint of how it should be made in the first place, how it should be designed. And they were they were lovely. I mean, it was they were very flattered. And this is something which I'm I always appreciate. I'm always touched by. These guys are kind of like unsung heroes. People don't really know who they are when it comes to the actual the the complex the um, the institution. Um, you don't have in the same way that journalists are not interviewed; they do the interviewing. These schools just supply supply a, a workforce. So to go there, show interest in what they do, how they do it, uh, I find fascinating, and I love to be able to share that with people on the outside. But it's not not it's not conventionally done. And it's something that I would like to do with, well, everywhere, given, you know, within the fullness of time to be able to uh, actually have features on all the different schools, whether that's in Ireland, England, Switzerland, um, the Netherlands, Holland, Finland, whatever, to, to be able to actually to show all these different institutions which are responsible for nurturing the, the future of, uh, of an industry. It was really fascinating to see the, the different creative approaches that the, the students at the Hiko Mizuno school took to movement design. And we're talking like they, they took base calibers and, and turned them into to tourbillons and, and full calendars. Uh, just really impressive stuff. It made that much more impressive hearing from you just how limited their, their access to tooling is compared to, to other schools that are out there. Given your own history and, and knowledge working within the, the industry, uh, do you have any plans or aspirations to to start delving into to creating even more content, perhaps even some videos on the manufacturing techniques and and the thinking that goes into to movement design for the Naked Watchmaker? There are there's there's a hundred projects listed That's fair. for the Naked Watchmaker. One of the things that holds it back is actually is actually me. Uh, Daniela deals with the marketing the clients, a lot of the administration. Um, we have people who help us with images, uh, other people who can help us with different content, written checks, PDF books and things. Um, but when it comes to the actual deconstructions or visiting the different companies, it tends to be me that does it. And it's not really a business in a conventional way, so I can't employ people to be able to to, to do that kind of study, at least not now. Maybe that will actually happen in the future. So there, there's a section on the site called Making, and the Making section has touched on Kyoshe. It's touched on now uh, after sales service. It yeah. has touched on how to make movements already using Volche as a, as a study. Mm-hmm. And that's really just the beginning. And I would like to include in that multiple different versions of the same things, the way they're executed by different companies. Because every many companies, there's parallels that run between companies and every company employs the same people in a sense. But diff, there are different cultures and there are different ways of executing the products that they actually make. Uh, and that is something that I would like to go into more detail and to be able to share. The video thing, it's a given how important that is uh, and how the moving the moving image is so much more powerful in a sense than the, the photographic approach that I take today. But it's also more complex in, in a lot of ways to, to actually... You can't, for example, 
you can't retouch films in the way you can retouch uh, an, an image. Most of what I did with Rouge, the musical box and bird box people, was actually video orientated. And I did a lot more with them and it was all done with an iPhone. And I loved it. It was actually pretty straightforward to do. So I do have aspirations to do a whole bunch of other things. Another thing, the study which will come out later this year is actually IP and the whole process behind intellectual property on searches, on uh, categories and where you should go, where you shouldn't go, why you Mm. should do different things. And that was done with a, a company called Griff Consulting in Geneva. So there's a million different facets to watchmaking and I would love to be able to integrate them into the site. Right now, the core is what you see is there, which is the deconstructions and the people section. The making needs to develop, and it is something that I want to do. Now that things are kind of stabilizing, we are in the process of developing a plan for the next five years. Um, With all those aspirations, all the things that we want to actually include into it, because the goal has always been to have a a neutral, objective, ultimate, if you like, uh, reference point for anybody wanting to understand about watchmaking. If you have a question, you can go to the site. One of the things which I started about a year ago, which is um, in the process of being made, is a glossary. But not a glossary like the Burner or the SIHH, uh, which are are basically just words with a few images, but but something which actually goes into much more depth. If you want to find out what a a sonnery is, it will explain what a minute repeater is, a grand sonnery, a quarter repeater, a half quarter, a five minute, a decimal, um, and give accompanying pictures. If you want to know what the Accutron is, there won't just be a picture of of an electromechanical watch from the 1960s, but it will go into the history which is behind it. It's an enormous project. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's something which is actually already established. It won't be out until next year in a form. Mm -hmm. And then once it has the skeleton of the material there, the object is to gradually build on every element of it so that every month it is reinforced. If, for example, the sonnery section only, only has a few examples, then it will continue to be topped up. It will continue to be, you know, to be added to. There's something like 400, 400 pages and 1,400 words. I mean, there's a lot more words than that in the horological dictionary, but there's approximately that which is actually in this version, which covers all of the essentials for anybody to have a, a, a clear view. And then that in turn will be all be incorporated into the Naked Watchmaker. Another project which is in the background is a book which covers the development of watchmaking from its dawn. It covers what's happened in the last 30 years, ever since, in fact, from the 1960s and 1970s up until today. It actually touches on my story of everything that I did and also what happened uh, in relation to my company. Mm. All all of the mistakes that uh, mistakes, um, all the learning curves that, that were made Um, Because what I discovered, another discovery that I made talking to a lot of different people in the business is that quite often the same mistakes are always repeated. But people don't talk about them. So people don't learn from them. And the same mistakes continue to be repeated. And that can be from investor or investee. So the aspiration with the book, or part of the book, 
is that it will actually touch on a lot of those things that nobody ever talks about, but can actually maybe help other people from making the same mistakes and on both sides of the fence as well. Um, it's not about ego. It's not about um, uh, any malaise of any sorts. It, it's very much uh, with the object, as with the Naked Watchmaker, of sharing knowledge so people can actually forward their, their understanding of a, of a particular industry. So there's a lot. There's an awful lot of other stuff coming. Right, right now, because it is kind of, I say, in a sense, calming down, um, or it's becoming more and more stable. Now, we had a basic plan of action at the very beginning, and it's all been fulfilled. Now, we are we're going to have a clearer structure for the next step, which will be this next five-year period. And then once we get there, we'll, we've already got ideas on where we want to take it beyond that. It's a heck of a lot of work. But I think going back to what you your question earlier, is it what I expected it to be? I think yes and more. When it comes to the the acknowledgements that we get we have random people who just say thank you who email yeah. us collectors people in the industry people who are selling their watches they contact us we had one guy from i won't say who it is but from one big brand uh, sales guy in the uk and he said thank you for what you do because not only have you given me the means to be able to actually help educate i.e., sell and sell to my client but we've rekindled his own passion for watchmaking. Mm. That is that is incredibly rewarding. That is such a wonderful thing to, to hear. We had another collector who contacted us last week. Um, Daniela receives all these emails and she, she filters them through and she shows me certain ones. And this one guy is a collector who said that every time he tries to explain to uh, a friend um, or an acquaintance why he loves what he loves, why he's a collector... He refers them to the naked watchmaker and he sends them to certain places and then they get it and then they understand it. Recently, one of the biggest, one of the oldest companies in, in Switzerland uh, who deals in the manufacture of a, of a component, of a particular component used by every watchmaking company, contacted us because they want us to come to the factory to see how they make the component that they make that is used by everybody. It's, it's actually incredible recognition for, for what we're doing, even though I believe this would happen, when it actually materializes, it's, it's an incredible feeling. I have a sense of surprise still, an incredible gratitude that it is actually being acknowledged in the way that it actually is. So uh, it's an extraordinary journey, and it does feel like it's one that I did start back in London with Somlos uh, and copious amounts of Guinness about 30 years ago. So one of the journeys that I'm on right now is, as Jen, John mentioned earlier, I've been a jeweler for the last 20 years and primarily focused on pens. And I've been starting to make my own watches with uh, with a plan to sort of make a, a small brand of, of watches. But one of the questions that I have is is surrounding movement design. There doesn't seem to be a lot of good information out there about how to go about designing a basic movement. Do you have any suggestions on where to start looking for that and where to sort of start that journey of, of designing a movement? I think it was one of your podcasts. You spoke about Daniel's book on watchmaking. Okay. Now, I don't, it's certainly not definitive, but you literally have to suck the juice out of every publication which touches on that subject. 
there isn't anything which really, without going to back to school, and there's not a great deal which is really out there because it's incredibly complex. Uh, it's it's super detailed. A full time education will last at least three years to be able to fully be qualified as a constructor once you're you're actually done, and then you've only just begun. Then you've only got your license. Then you would still have to really learn life experience driving on the road. If you look at books like uh, The Theory of Horology, that again will give you a basic understanding of everything. Now, a lot of it you already know, but there's there's not there's, there's quite a lot of theory in there, which is actually quite interesting. I haven't searched, so I don't know. There's probably better pe- better people to pose the question to who could give you a more comprehensive answer of where to go. Um, one of the things, though, which I think is invaluable for any constructor is to have a certain amount of experience working on vintage pieces uh, and in after-sale service, because by working on pieces which have been out in nature for whatever period of time, you get an idea of what works and doesn't work, because on a, on a computer, everything works, and everything can work for six months or six days or even a year. But if you want to have something which is going to work for like the, uh, the, the, the future, you can often learn that best by seeing how watches survive over a long period of time. And I think if you look at somebody like, oh, guys like Derek Pratt, guys like uh, um, Carrie Butler-Lyman, even uh, Stephen Forsey, all of these guys who are watchmakers who are also constructors or give influence, give uh, input into the constructions of their of their products, of their movements, they all come from cutting their teeth on in uh, in vintage uh, in the vintage world. By looking at those early pieces, you you can learn a great deal. If you want to be very very safe, follow a, a classic construction that comes from a marine chronometer that were then adopted in the pieces in the 1940s where quite simply you have the basic proportions of a third barrel, a third train, and a third escapement. And then whether the product is a high quality or low quality, it will probably work well and probably give decent, uh, a decent element of accuracy. And then that's really, in a sense, very, very safe. If you want to be more adventurous, it's, you, yeah, it, it's a lot more time, a lot more money, uh, a lot more of everything. Um, but I think the only example, the only real answer I can give you is is learn from the past. Jaja made incredible. I mean, they make nice watches today, but the watches that I saw that they were making, like back in the 1940s, were amongst the most beautiful pieces ever made. Uh, and I be- beautiful from an aesthetic, but also from a, a functional aspect. They were workhorses. The only thing that would impede them is often the cases were never water resistant at the time, so they would oxidize and they would suffer but the the basic proportions within them were were perfect and you can you can cheat on the perfect perform the perfect proportions using different materials different techniques that are actually made today but if you want to have something which is yours your own design without fully reinventing the the wheel be influenced by jeja of the 1940s and and you'll never go far wrong one of the things that you mentioned in, uh, I think, the Q&A portion of your talk at the Horological Society of New York was the students' room at the British Museum. And I'm, I'm a little curious about that. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the British Museum, and I didn't realize they had this, uh, this room available. 
Have you had a chance since then to to be able to to spend more time there? No, sadly not. And it became um, it became pointless. The, the 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 folk that 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 live and work there understood the concept completely and they loved it. The problem became was the politics which is behind the the museum, and the naked watchmaker is a is oh, it's not exactly a charity, but it it is a, a kind of a non a, really a non commercial uh, platform. Whereas I just came back from uh, Tokyo and I went to the Seiko Museum and I photographed everything that I could that anything that I wanted to and we're not just talking about Seiko but early sunglasses uh, incense clocks a whole menagerie of, of different timepieces that go back in history that they gave me access to and I could photograph everything within a lot of museums what they have their collections are are their value and mm-hmm. they to be able to access it is super difficult and on top of that, they wanted to actually do the photography themselves, which is not, which isn't, was not really the goal in the first place. And on top of that, you have to pay. So it's like this would become uh, sort of financial suicide uh, in, sure. in that sense. So I saw pieces. I mean, they have over 4,000 pieces hidden away in, uh, in, in drawers in the students' room. And you can go there. You can, you can make a, a request, go there, state the kind of things that you want to look at. And I'm assuming it's all archived, or I haven't looked for, for a long time. And then you can actually look at it. But you can't photograph it. And if you have it photographed, then you have to pay for it. So that kind of put out of bounds the possibility of actually working with them to be able right. to uh, generate more material for the, for the site. And and I assume that they're they're not interested in allowing you to sort of deep dive into the watch either. It's not as if they're going to let you take apart the watch and and see what's going on inside of it. No, and that wasn't even actually what I asked, uh, asked of them. Uh, my my request to them was just to be able to have basic access, to be able to the maximum would be to take off a dial, to be able to see the under dial work, uh, remove it from a case, to be able to take the picture of the of the, the movement. Because with the right. macro photography that I have, I can go into incredible depth without dismantling the whole piece. In, in, in a lifetime, you can't do everything, but you can do something. So I wanted to be able to get just like the, at least the superficial access. And mm, there's probably not a watchmaker or very few watchmakers like myself who are actually qualified to be able to do that. Uh, right. and, and in addition to take the pictures. Because I've I've basically done it all before. I even had the option of doing a deconstruction on one of the most famous tourbillons ever made recently, made by Breguet uh, during his own lifetime. So, I mean, these kind of things I know how to, to do. I have that experience. I have the knowledge. Right. But it's the politics that can sometimes actually block Sure. Them. So, but there's only, I mean, uh, th- there's always alternatives. Uh, I'm sure that they have pieces which are probably completely unique and cannot be viewed anywhere else. But for the time being, I, I concentrate on those companies and, and watches that are achievable in the short term. Well, and they're not the only people on the planet who have an impressive collection of, of watches either. There are other, even some of these companies have, have incredible collections of historical pieces. Absolutely. Absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Completely. Well, to riff again on, on one of your 12 questions uh, towards the, the end of them, 
one of the benefits of, of being a watchmaker is that you can work just about anywhere in the world, and, and your work has, has certainly allowed you to, to travel to many places. Uh, are there any, any places on the planet that, that are, are on your bucket list that you have not yet been able to visit? I think on one side, we all work a lot, and work alone is not the route, as it were, to being successful in whatever you do. There's a whole bunch of other things as well, but we, we all work a lot. I do have, I would probably echo what Marc-Andre Deschoux said in his 12 questions. Marc-Andre is the guy behind Watches, Watch Time TV or Time TV. Watches, I, I forget the name of the, the Watches TV. The Watches TV. There you go. Thank you. And he said that one of his, um, one of his goals um, was to be able to have, I think, more than two weeks off on holiday. <laughs> I would kind of like to go, I would just like to have a holiday. I love the idea of like either going for a sabbatical or literally going to Bali for like three months and doing nothing. I love Asia. I always have done. I kind of feel as in another life I was actually, I was from there. So I've seen a lot of the world. I do have an affinity for Asia and I would lo- I do love this uh, this idea of being able to to spend an extended period of time to stop. I think it would probably increase my, my life expectancy and probably make me better at what I do as well. So that's probably quite a simple one. And it doesn't have to be uh, an ex- a huge period of time, but just some. So that's kind of like one aspiration. Um, having said that, my life, I don't do a nine to five. Um, I don't have a conventional life. So I'm already living a life that I choose to live in the way that I want to live it. So uh, I'm not hard done by, by any stretch of imagination. But aspirations would be to have an extended break on a beach in Bali. I think that would probably be one. On a professional level, that would probably be like a continuation of the Tokyo Watchmaking School to be able to actually travel around the world. And it's not necessarily to do with the places, but it's always to do with the people. And to visit the different schools, the different institutions, people who are directly implicated in watchmaking, who get, who are sure that this future, because you meet some absolutely incredible individuals, and there's always something to be learned. When, when you meet people who are those people who are passionate about what they do, it's infectious. And sometimes when I meet like these young students who are at this school. And they are so full of what they are doing. It helps to remind me of why I started doing what I do at the beginning. Uh, it, it's, it is, it's completely addictive. It's infectious. It's, um, it's contagious to be able to, to be around those kind of people. So the idea of actually traveling and going to all these different institutions and meeting the people, that is something which would actually, yeah, that would, that would be a pretty big, big part of my bucket list on a professional level is is there anything else that, that you would want us to, to touch on or to cover the, the most important thing for me today is that we, uh, we we nurture and spread the word of the naked watchmaker the longer it's there the more content we have the stronger it becomes the more people who follow it the more companies uh, get involved in it and it's because of the different companies who I work with that I'm able to do it because they give me access to the um, uh, access to the product. I always work outside inside of the, the companies today. 
they basically all of the companies with whom, whom we work, all of the material that I develop, they have access to. And that is something which is the reason why this why the Naked Watchmaker has a future, because it, it mm. is supported by the companies who are actually mentioned on there. Then it's never marketing, because we never use in fact, if ever I take um and this is the same with every watchmaking company, big or small, you take a press release and I need from a press release that which is not opinion, that which is not superlatives, that which is just factual. Okay. And often I reduce it by about 80% just to get to the material which is actually uh, essential. So the, the Naked Watchmaker is never about uh, trying to sell a product. It's about sharing, uh, sharing a passion. It's about sharing knowledge uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the day. That is something that requires the company's collaboration. Uh, as I said, Mr. Hayek, he opened the door. Now we have, I mean, Bulgari was huge. Um, that's another big one. Vashon is another big one. And the more people who follow the Naked Watchmaker, the more numbers that are behind it, ultimately that will help us to be able to access more and more companies, to be able to, to deconstruct the, the watches, to be able to share them with the outside world. So really, the, um, to, to, to perpetuate the Naked Watchmaker or the, to spread the word of the Naked Watchmaker means is perpetuation and allows us to be able to, to work with even more different people. And in the fullness of time, to be able to actually have, uh, to find other people like myself who will be able to assist us in, in, in the deconstructions, in the education, not just deconstructions, but as you suggested, in, in videos, uh, in studies, into, into other elements, to go into them in a more profound level uh, as well. So we just need to continue to, to see it nurtured, to see it grow, increase the visibility in the industry and way, way beyond for the Naked Watchmaker. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>